0: We mentioned earlier, you know yesterday was a great day for us to do exactly what Brother Ted mentioned in in the video there. It's an opportunity for us to not just love one another but to love our community and uh, specifically, we are committed as a church to loving kids, loving the next generation uh, and I just I just want to say this morning that uh, that is so so fundamental to who we are as a church. Uh, And and as a parent, if I can step out of the, the pastor role for a moment and just say, as a parent, I love my church because of what it offers my family. I love the fact that right now, Ms. Steph and the other leaders are upstairs instilling the Word of God in my three daughters, that they have been leading them in a worship service just like we had down here. They were upstairs learning to worship God uh, with songs that are catered to them, and, and they have opportunities. They'll have an opportunity today, before they dismiss that service, to uh, lift their hand and, and, and respond to a desire to pray and to ask the Lord to work in their hearts and in their lives. And... Some of those kids have already reached a point in their life where they understand the reality of of what it means to need a Savior. And they've heard the gospel like we're going to hear again today. And some of those kids for the first time will throw up their hand and say, Miss Steph, would you pray with me? I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I'm so grateful that as a father I can bring my kids to a place where they can discover their gifts and abilities where they can discover their talents, where they have opportunities to serve. For some of you that were here last Sunday, you saw this stage was absolutely filled with our kids. They were singing songs and dancing and and leading us. I'm so grateful. I believe that if we can reach the kids, we can reach the community. And I'm so grateful for what this church does for our family. You know, there was a time in, in our country where you could count on the culture to teach our kids the values of morality and honor for others and honor for God. There was a time in American history when you could depend on the culture of the society to teach our kids right from wrong and and have clearly communicated lines and understandings about ethics and all of those things. But those were also times where the public school day would begin with a word of prayer. Th- those were also uh, times in America's history where businesses shut down and closed their doors on Sunday because we understood as a people that this is the Lord's day and people are going to be in God's house. That-, that was a time in the nation when, when people, uh, with- without hesitation, put their hand over their heart and pledged to a flag as one nation under God. That was a different time in our nation. It was a time when in God we trust was just the most logical statement that we would put on our currency. Having the Ten Commandments displayed in our courthouses was not an infringement on anyone's religious liberties. It was just a basic foundational bedrock for social justice. But that isn't the America that we live in today. Maybe you've noticed Maybe you've been paying attention to the news, and that's not the culture that we live in today. So while it was a blessing in the past, it's not an inherited benefit for our children today. And on a side note, by the way, it was never the nation's responsibility to teach our children to follow God. But it certainly was a blessing and that's not the reality that we live in today. The reality today is if you want to have that kind of culture, you need to bring your children to God's house. You need to be a part of the local church. You need to be involved with the family of God. If you want to be in a culture that encourages uh, morality and, and ethics and honoring God and honoring other people, you got to get your kids in the local church and get them involved because this is the place where those values were birthed. This is the place where all that started. Whether the nation goes that way or not, this is what led the nation there, and this is what's still leading the church in that direction. See, the Bible says this. The Bible says that Jesus is the head of the church, and that we are the body of Christ. And so the DNA of the head is the same as the DNA of the body. And so really what the church is, at least what it should be, is a reflection of the same character, the same nature, the same attributes and attitudes that Jesus Himself demonstrated. I love the church. I love the church this morning because it's a place where my family can experience Christian community. I mean, I don't live in Mayberry. I mean, Wrightsville's nice, but, you know, we're not the Cleaver family. Those days are gone. I'm not getting in. Biblical instruction uh, from the community. It happens in the community of faith. Jesus made this incredible prediction, a forecast, in about AD 33. In 33 AD, he made two statements that were absolutely amazing. Here's the first one. He said that his message, the message of the gospel, the one that we're going to proclaim today, he said this message will be preached in every nation in the world. The second statement that he made that was absolutely incredible, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. Now I'm going to tell you, those are incredible statements that he would make and both of those statements could be qualified as delusions of grandeur when you consider the reality that he was in. When Jesus made those statements, he was living in some little small uh, country that was being governed by a a powerful nation. They were not even in control of their own people. And the people that he was talking to was a group of uneducated fishermen. That that was his all-star team. That was the first string. A bunch of young teenage guys who had no ministry experience. And yet, when you fast forward some 2,000 years to the current day and age that we're in, the Church of Jesus Christ is the largest organization on the earth. You're a part of something that is the biggest global organization in all of the earth. More than 2 billion churchgoers gather every weekend to worship on this planet. And I would say probably a lot more than that today. How did that happen? How did we go from just a little small band of misfits in some obscure little place to two billion people around the world gathering in places just like this, in grand cathedrals, in little storefronts, in little huts, and even in caves, people all over the world. How did we get to that point? Two words. Two words. They're the most quoted words from Jesus of all the things that he said, more times than any other The apostles quoted Jesus two words, follow me, follow me. That's how he did it. He said, follow me. What he's saying is, think as I think, do as I do, treat people the way I treat people, love people the way that I love people. And you know what? That's exactly what the disciples did. They went out from that place and and they followed Jesus. And and we know the Easter story and we'll rehearse it again. But he was died and crucified and buried and rose. And even though he had ascended to the Father, they just did what he said to. They followed Jesus. They followed him to to Greece and to Turkey and to Spain, to Italy, to India, to Africa and all the places in between. Those first uh, group of young men took the gospel To all those places. And within the first 100 years of the church's existence. It had spread throughout the entire Mediterranean basin. Everywhere they went. They did what Jesus said do. They they followed him. They loved people the way that Jesus loved them. And they said the things that Jesus said. History tells us that in A.D. 3.13... So about 300 years after Jesus rose from the grave and and ascended back to heaven, that Constantine issued an edict in Milan that made Christianity legal. For the first time in 300 years, since its inception, being a Christian was actually legal. Before that point, because it was illegal, what was legal was the persecution of the church. Many Christians in those early days, those first 300 years were thrown in prison. And those were the lucky ones. Many were burned at the stake. Some were fed to the lions. Many were thrown into the Roman Colosseum for sport with the gladiators. That was the reality of the church. And yet amidst Incredible persecution amidst all of the struggle. There was something that was, it, that was magnetic about the people of God. It was that they were following Jesus. The way they loved people. The way they responded to, to difficulty and persecution. Instead of the church fading out, it grew stronger. The movement actually caught air and took flight. And once it was legalized in 313 AD, the church was for the first time Able to build buildings in public and call it the church. Now, I said a moment ago that Christ is the head and that we are the body of Christ. We are the church. The church is not this building at 365 Orange Street. The church is a living organism. It's it's breathing. It's moving. You, me, together. We are the church. But for the first time in the history of the movement, they were finally able to build a building and say, we have A church. We have a a house that we can go and we can worship God in. And it was at the Council of Nisa that it was decided that whenever a cathedral was to be built, that the church would also build a hospital right next to it. And so the church began to build centers for compassion and centers for healing all over the world. With that same Christ-like DNA that's in his In the head and in our hearts, with the same DNA, Christians invented the idea of charitable organizations. That was a church idea. You trace the the lineage and the, the, the epicenter of movements like the Red Cross or the YMCA. Christian organizations like the Salvation Army, World Vision, Compassion International, Samaritan's Purse. All of these founded on two words from Jesus. Follow me. Do what I do. Say what I say, love people the way that I love people. I want to tell you this morning, I love my church. Because the church is God's plan A for the salvation of the world. And you know what? There isn't a plan B. That's how much confidence God put in us. That's how much uh, He's devoted and committed Himself to the body of Christ. There's no plan B. You can read the book cover to cover. It's, it's us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Without Him in us, there is no hope for a lost and dying world. It's not about you this morning. But it is up to you. Because we're the church. And there's something incredible about being able to be a part of the body of Christ. Globally, but there's something significant about being a part of the body of Christ locally. That this is His expression That we are the DNA of Jesus in the earth. Not perfectly. We have our faults. We make our mistakes. But there is no plan B. So as much as we get it right. Is as much of Jesus as this world gets. So I'm so grateful that I can be a part of the church. I love the church. But this morning I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about why I love the church. I don't want to spend too much time talking about why I think you should love the church. What I want to do for the time that we have left this morning is I want to tell you how Jesus himself communicated, I love my church. It's his church and he loves it deeply. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them with me to a book in the New Testament, the book of Romans. If you want to borrow a Bible, we have them in the pew backs there and we'll put these scriptures up on the screen. You can read them there. But in Romans chapter 5, God begins to communicate to us, through the Apostle Paul, how Jesus stated clearly His love for the church. As we get ready to read from Romans 5, I want to just pray as you're turning in your Scriptures. Father God, thank You so much for the opportunity to come together on the Lord's Day, on this Easter Sunday. God, this moment right here is the most significant moment of our worship experience. Because, Lord God, you communicated that through your spirit, you would lead us into all truth. So, God, right now, as we open this book, God, help us to not allow anything to distract us, to steal away our attention. God, help us to discipline our minds and to lean in to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. God, I believe, according to Scripture, that you have a word you want to say specifically to our hearts. Don't let anyone in this place miss it today, what you're trying to say. God, teach us by your word. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. God, teach us what it means to be loved by the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Romans chapter 5. I want you to look at a couple verses with me, beginning in verse 6. This is what it says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, it says, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But look at verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love For us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved the church by dying for the church. Can I tell you this morning? You're not a good enough person. I know that's why you got dressed up and came to church to, to hear that, you wanted to have the preacher tell you you're not good enough. So you're welcome. Have a great afternoon. Uh, no, But it's true. The reality is we're self-deceived if we think that, that we're somehow good enough to have access into the presence of a holy and a perfect God. See, the Bible communicates just a couple chapters earlier in in chapter 3 what the Word says about us as sinful People, It says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, we've sinned. And so when you look at this verse in chapter 5, and Paul writes to him and he says, you know, he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Maybe, just maybe, somebody would possibly dare to die for a good person. But he's kind of saying that like to juxtapose the reality that that's not you. Like maybe somebody would die for a really good person. But we're talking about the God of heaven. Who who lives in unapproachable light. Who's surrounded by the angels who are forever singing and worshiping Him. And, and for Him to step down out of glory and to die for you. There's nothing you could do to earn that. And that's what that's what Paul's saying. There's nothing that you could do to earn that. But here's the deal God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so glad this morning on this Easter Sunday that he demonstrated his love for us. That he didn't just demonstrate his fairness or his justice. Because if that was the deal, if God had just demonstrated His fairness or His justice to us, we'd all be punished. We'd all be deserving of the wrath of God. Because Romans 3 says, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. None of us measure up. And so that would be the deal on the table. But it's not the deal on the table because Jesus said, I love my church. And because I love my church, I'm going to demonstrate my love by dying for the church. How how does He love the church? He... Loves the church graciously, graciously. Look at Roman I just quoted you Romans 3:23. but let's go to the next verse. Right after Romans 3:23 says, "All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God." The next verse says, "And it's not the end of the sentence yet. It's not the end of the promise yet. He says, "Not only have we all fallen short, but all are justified." That's that's an awesome Bible word. Justified just means this. It means that God sees us just as if I had never sinned. That's what justification means. It just means you've never done anything wrong. You know, like that first time parent who lets their kid get away with murder and everybody else is like, spank that child, do something. But that parent sees that child justified. They're perfect. They can do no wrong. Or maybe, maybe it's different. Maybe it's the grandparent. You know, the, the parents are pulling their hair out. And the grandparents are like, oh, just let them go. They're so sweet. You would have you grounded me for a week for that. But the grandkids are justified. Right? It's different. And here's, here's what the word says. We're justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Christ, the only way you can be justified by grace is freely. Because if you had to earn it, if you had to pay for it, it wouldn't be grace. There's people that push back at this moment. They they say, you know, and they've been taught that you can't get something for nothing. And so when you go, oh no, you're justified freely by grace. You go wait 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 a minute wait a minute. I mean I gotta like I, I have good attendance at church. I you know, I've got, to, I've got to be a good spouse. I, I need to, uh, you know, support the, the church. And, and I need to stop a couple of my habits. And here's the things that I need to do to be justified. But no, no, no. You're like that, you're like that first grandbaby. You can do no wrong. When it comes to earning the grace of Jesus. He justified you freely by His grace. If you had to earn it, you couldn't earn it. But you didn't have to earn it because he demonstrated his love for us. Look at the next verse with me. The first part of verse 25 says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now again, I've got to stop right here because that's a big Bible word. You probably didn't use around the water cooler this week at work. You probably weren't talking about atonement. But it's a powerful word. And it says he presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement that word atonement means restoration or reconciliation there's a lot of words that are that are nuanced in the word atonement it can mean to wipe away to remove the word atonement can mean to purify or here's a word atonement can mean to decontaminate That's that's what God did in sending Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice. He decontaminates us from the sin in our life. He wipes away. He removes the sin. He purifies us, it says, as a sacrifice of atonement. How does He do it? Through the shedding of His blood. Now, again, I just got to stop right here because maybe you even know the Easter story. You're not hit, sitting on the edge of your seat to find out if he comes out of the grave or not today. You, you've heard this before. And yet, maybe even still, you wonder, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, if God's god and he's in charge and he knew we were going to mess up before we messed up and he knows what we're going to do before we do it, why go through the process? Why did Jesus have to shed his blood on a gruesome cross on Golgotha's hill to make atonement for my sin. Why did Jesus have to die? In the biblical system, atonement, one of the key ingredients for atonement, is blood. You can trace it all the way back To The very first story with Adam and Eve and we don't have time today to rehearse all of it But over and over and over again, it's emphasized throughout the system of the bible that a key ingredient for atonement is Blood when you read about the priests who were making sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people They're sacrificing animals when they're when they're cleansing impure objects. They're using blood most often there's blood involved. In fact, the Bible says this. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Look at this verse. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood. Would you say these last four words with me? There is no forgiveness. So God established a pattern. And the pattern is called substitution. You were sinful. I was sinful. We needed to have the sin removed, purified, decontaminated from our life. But rather than us getting up on the altar and shedding our own blood, we have a substitute. His name's Jesus. God put him in the game, he put him in your place to score the points you couldn't score. He substituted for us. He took our place. That's what this means. That Jesus became the atoning, substitutional sacrifice for our sins. That's why when Jesus began His earthly ministry, John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and he told all the crowds, he said, Look! Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away, atones, who decontaminates, who purifies... The sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God. Because John understood that part of the purpose that Jesus even came to the earth was so that he could shed his blood. So before he even preached his first sermon, performed his first miracles, gathered his first crowd, John declared the purpose of Jesus coming to the earth. He said he's come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is how Jesus declares his love for us the bible says in second corinthians 5 in verse 21 it says god made him who had no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of god that's the substitution that's the deal this morning That God puts on the table for each and every one of us. Not measure up. Not get it right. Not perfect your life. The deal is tag. Let me in the game. Let me substitute my righteousness for your unrighteousness. Let me substitute your failure for my victory. Let me substitute your death for my resurrection today. And he says that's the deal on the table. Jesus died on the cross so that his blood. His blood could cover our sin. And everyone that puts their faith in that promise, everyone who believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord, everyone that believes that Jesus' blood is enough to cover my sins, to give me grace, here's what happens for you. God looks down at you. He sees you as much as he ever has. But instead of seeing all of your sin and all your failure, what he now sees is Jesus' blood. He's covered you he's decontaminated you he's purified you there's been a substitute your sin for his righteousness you know i I was studying this this week and i thought it was interesting that i i learned that the symbol for the word righteous in the chinese language you know the chinese language uses symbols and characters the symbol for righteous in the chinese language is actually two symbols together It's right here. It's the symbol of a lamb and the symbol of a person. Now I know that doesn't look like a lamb or a person, but I don't speak Chinese either. But the lamb is the image on top. And the image of the lamb covers the image of the person. And that word means righteous. And that's exactly what happens when we come to Christ. The lamb covers us. His perfect, uh, sinless sacrifice covers us so that when God looks down and sees us, He sees the Lamb covering us. That's what it means to be saved. It doesn't mean we figured it out. It doesn't mean we've perfected it. It means we put ourselves under the Lamb. He's covered us. Isn't that awesome? Some of you guys are going to go get that tattooed on your back this week. It's going to be cool. Righteous. Here's what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 3 says, We are hidden. In Christ. We're hidden in Christ. That's what it means to be under the Lamb. I I love the church. And I love that Jesus said, I'm going to love my church by dying for her. I'm going to give my life for her. But I would be remiss if I stopped with that declaration today. Because he didn't stop there. Jesus not only said, I love the church by dying for her. Jesus loved the church by rising from the dead for her. Jesus loved the church by rising for us. Look with me. We're still in the book of Romans, but would you go to chapter 4? I want you to see a verse there that says in chapter 4, in verse 25, He, speaking of Jesus, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life. For our justification. And we've already talked about why he had to die. Why his blood had to be shed. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But look at that verse. It says he was raised to life for our justification. Again, justified. It means to get us to a place where God looks at you and looks at me and says, It's just like they never sin. It's just like they can't do wrong. When I see them, I see the Lamb. To get to that place, Jesus couldn't just die for our sin. His rising from the grave communicates that God actually received that sacrifice. You know, there's been a lot of people that have died for causes. There's been a lot of people that have been martyrs for things they believed in. But only one person ever came and died and rose again for what he believes in. And so what the empty tomb says to us is that the cross was enough. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, maybe God didn't receive the sacrifice. maybe our sins aren't forgiven. We could put our faith in a work that was done, but we don't really know. but the Bible says that he was delivered over to death for our sin and raised to life for our justification so to deny the resurrection, there's a lot of people that they 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 worship jesus and and, and they they're they're touched by the Image of a Savior hanging on a cross. But Jesus isn't hanging on a cross. And if we deny the bodily resurrection of the Lord. The Bible tells us exactly what the implications of that will be in our life. It's in First Corinthians. We'll just put this on the screen. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 17 tells us what it means to deny the resurrection. It says, and if Christ has not been raised. Then your faith. Is futile. And you are still. In your sins. I want to tell you on this Easter Sunday morning. That Jesus didn't just die. For sins. In dying for sins. Jesus issued a death blow. To death itself. He conquered the grave. He didn't just come back from the dead. He didn't lie in a catatonic state in some cold, dark tomb where his body was healed and revived three days later. He resurrected from the grave today. Can I just tell you that today is not resuscitation day. It's resurrection day. There's a difference. You know, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus brought him back to life after he had died. There was a woman from Nain who her little son had died and Jesus interrupted the funeral and he raised her up. There was a time when Jesus was walking through the streets and he met a man named Jairus who said, Come and heal my daughter. She's sick. But by the time Jesus got there, she had already died and he raised her back to life. But that's not what happened on Easter Sunday. This is not just resuscitation. This is not giving you another 30 or 40 or 60 years to inhabit the earth. Jesus went and he stole the keys, the Bible says, to death, hell, and the grave. He took authority out of the enemy's hands and he put it back in his. That, that's an incredible demonstration of the love of God for us. And I love the verse that Brother Don shared with us earlier. Jesus said this in Revelation. He said, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. The Bible tells us that the penalty of sin is death. Many of you could quote that verse. Romans six twenty three: The wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. But because of the resurrection, because Jesus went and took the keys to death, it has no authority anymore. Because of what He accomplished for us on that first Easter, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's here's what the Bible tells us we have to do to be saved. This is the most important question that we could answer. How, How do I know? Preacher, what... How do I know that I'm saved? If it's not by my works, I mean, I can't keep a tally. I can't, I can't keep a list of rules. How do I know? Romans chapter 10. Look at it with me. Romans chapter 10. It says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him, From the dead. Not you believe in your heart that Jesus was a good teacher. Not that you believe in your heart that the Bible is a good moral authority. Not that you believe in your heart even that Jesus died on the cross. He did die on the cross. But if you confess with your mouth that he's Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So you thank God for Good Friday. But Good Friday leaves us longing for a future hope. But because of the resurrection, because Jesus has the keys to death, hell, and the grave, we can stare death in the face. We can have hope for tomorrow. If we believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will, it says, be saved. You will be saved. Jesus loved the church by dying for the church. Jesus loved the church by rising from the dead, by resurrecting. I want to tell you one more way that Jesus loves this church. That he loves you. A lot of people, they wonder, what what is Jesus doing? Maybe you you heard Jesus was coming back. And maybe you heard that all your life. And so you wonder, well, what's he doing? What's taking so long? What's Jesus doing? I want to tell you what Jesus is doing today. He's praying for us. He loves us. The church so much. That he demonstrates his love in this. He is praying for us. In the garden. Before they arrested Jesus. He was praying. For the church. The church that hadn't even been started yet. He was praying for the church. Here's what it says in John 17. The Lord is praying for the church, and he says, "My prayer is not for them only." In other words, that little band of uh, of misfits that he called his disciples. I'm not just praying for them only. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's me. That's you. By one following Jesus, leading another who followed Jesus, leading another who followed Jesus. His prayer gets to us. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. He was praying for the church before it even got started. But here's the incredible thing. He didn't stop praying for us when he went to the cross. He didn't stop praying for us there. The Bible says in Romans 8. In fact, I want you to, if you're still in Romans, go to Romans chapter 8. This entire message can be summed up in this one verse. And some of you are getting hungry and you wished I would have summed the whole message up in this one verse. But if you nodded off earlier, this is your opportunity to catch up. Here's the whole sermon in one verse. Romans 8 verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, that was his first demonstration of love. More than that, who was raised to life, there's a demonstration of his love is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's he's praying for us right now. Jesus is praying for us. There there was a a great Bible teacher years ago, A.W. Tozer, who said these words. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a big statement. Think about that for a second. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, how we see God dictates how you see yourself. It dictates your future. It dictates your life. And if there's any astigmatism in your vision of who God is and what God desires for you, it's going to distort your whole vision of life. So just ask yourself right now, when I, when I take a snapshot in my mind, a mental picture of what God is like, is He smiling? Is He angry? Is He facing you or has He turned His back? When you get a mental picture of God, are His hands reaching out to you or is His finger pointing in condemnation? Your mental image of God is the most important thing about your life. And I want to tell you the predominant image in our culture, I believe the predominant image of Jesus is Christ on the cross. When people think about Jesus, they they see him hanging there as the sacrifice for our sins. And it's a great picture because there's not a better picture of a demonstration of the love of God that he would die In our place. But I want you to know this morning. He's not there. That's not where he's at today. We need to get a different vision. In our mind this morning. Jesus the Bible says. Is seated at the right hand of glory. Jesus the Bible says. Is beside the father. And he is making intercession for us. The Bible says he is praying for us hebrews 7 says this therefore he is able to save completely aren't you glad he doesn't just halfway save us he can save completely those who come to god through him because he always lives to intercede for them right now jesus is appealing for you this morning say what, what's what's jesus doing today well he's certainly not on a cross he's not still walking around jerusalem somewhere scaring people, you know, in a a resurrected body. No, He's at the right hand of the Father. And He's interceding for you. He's praying for you because He's able to save you completely. And He's not praying for you based on what you can do because Isaiah prophesied, he said, your righteousness, your good works, they're like filthy rags. But because of His righteousness, because of the fact that at the cross He became sin for us, so that we could become the righteousness of God. The Lamb is now over us. And we're under the Lamb and God sees us he j- as justified. He sees us as righteous. He loves us. He's praying for us today. He's praying for you today. And I want to tell you that this Jesus who demonstrated His love for us, by dying on the cross for us, by rising from the dead, by praying for us, this same Jesus... Is going to demonstrate his love again. The Bible says that Jesus is coming again. The Bible says that it's going to happen suddenly in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ shall shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The Bible says there's coming a moment where God is going to demonstrate his love to the greatest capacity. That he's going to call his bride, the church, home to be with him. The Bible paints a beautiful picture in Revelation of a marriage feast. Where we come to the marriage table of the Lord and the church is the bride. That's why I love the church. I want to be in the wedding party. He's coming back for the church. He died for the church. He loves the church. He rose from the grave for the church. He's praying for the church. And the Bible says he's going to come back and receive the church. So that where I am, he said, John 14, you may be also. That's the promise. He's coming back for the church. You know, I've been asked before, are these the last days? Are these the end times? Maybe you've seen things on the news and in our culture and you've wondered that yourself. I was asked just recently again, somebody asked, "Are are these the last days? Are we living in the last days? Is Jesus about to come back? I'm going to give you my theological answer. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Last Sunday I stood right here and I asked the church to pray with me for my next door neighbor because she'd been sick for the last four weeks. So we prayed for Nancy Urie. And I went home from church and ate lunch like the rest of you and No sooner had I changed out of my Sunday clothes, there was a knock at my door. The neighbors were calling because Nancy had just passed away. So here's what I know. Nancy was living in the last days. And the Bible says no man's guaranteed tomorrow. No man. So whether, whether it happens by the rapture of the church and Jesus comes back for his bride... Or whether we go by way of the grave. We're living in the last days. And that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you hear the Lord calling you. Respond to Him today. Because today is the day of salvation. I want to pray for you on this Easter Sunday morning. And I want to give you an opportunity here before we leave this sanctuary to just respond to the love of Jesus now as I look around this room today I, I I see a lot of worshipers I see a lot of people that look good today but I know that beneath all that there's a lot of hurt in hearts and in lives I know that beneath what we put on on Sunday morning by faith not by hypocrisy but just by faith like I, I don't feel it but bless God I'm gonna worship anyway. And you're doing a good job. But I know beneath that, there's needs in this room. Some of you need God to heal you in your body. Some of you need God to restore your thinking. You've been lied to by the devil and circumstances just beat you down. That you were just hoping, you were just hoping that in your heart today, the stone could be rolled away and resurrection life could be yours again. You were just hoping to be able to breathe deep and not sigh in frustration for the first time in a long time. As I look around this room today, I understand that there's probably people within the sound of my voice, you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. You know about Him, but He hasn't saved you. He hasn't changed you. He's not working in your heart and in your life. And so if you were honest with yourself today, you know that if today was your last day, You have no certainty of where you're going to spend eternity. Because Jesus is praying for the church. And you're not a part of the church. And I'm not talking about Wrightsville Assembly of God. I'm talking about the body of Christ. You're not a part of His family. He's the head and you're cut off. You don't have a relationship with Him. And you're here today. And whatever your need is in this moment, my heart on this Easter Sunday is to pray resurrection, life, invade your heart. That if, you, if you're sick in your body, guess what? When Jesus went to the cross, the Bible says in Isaiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisements that brought us peace was upon him. If you need peace in your mind, he's already carried that load. Get under the Lamb. And by His stripes, it says, we are healed. We're healed. So before we leave this place and we go and enjoy the family dinner and all of those things, let's go like those women early on Easter Sunday morning. Let's go and gaze into the tomb. And see it empty. See the angel standing there. Saying, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is alive just as he said And that resurrection life is available for us today. So I want to ask everyone to bow your head and close your eyes with me.